everyone, and welcome to Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review's first podcast. I am your host, Vina Tripathi, the lead online editor for Volume 103 of the Minnesota Law Review. Our guest today is Professor William McGovern, the author of The Duty of Data Security, published in Issue 3 of Volume 103, which is available online now. Dean McGovern is a Julius E. Davis Professor of Law, and his research focuses on legal and other rules governing digital identity and privacy. Additional aspects of his research include modernizing trademark law, comparing European and American approaches to data protection, and evaluating techniques used by privacy regulators. Dean McGovern received his JD from NYU Law School and his BA from Carleton College. Prior coming to the University of Minnesota, Dean McGovern was a resident fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School and practiced as an intellectual property litigator at Foley Hoag in Boston. His other publications include his uh, case book that he wrote, and he is the sole author of, called Privacy and Data Protection Law, which is used by instructors at two dozen law schools and is regularly used to teach data privacy courses here at the Minnesota Law School. He also teaches trademark law, civil procedure two, and law in practice, and he's an affiliated professor at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. Outside of his role as Associate Academic Dean, Dean McGovern serves as the reporter for the Uniform Law Commission Study Committee on Online Privacy Protection and is a member of the advisory board of the Future of Privacy Forum. Most importantly, uh, he's pretty great on Twitter, so and frequently <laughs> uses it <laughs> uh, to tweet about uh, different issues related to privacy in the media, and you can follow him at Bill McGev. Welcome, Dean McGovern. Podcast. Great to be here. And thank you so much for being here today. Sure. So I'm glad you made it clear that I wasn't the dean. My boss would get mad at me. <laughs> I'm the associate dean, yeah. <laughs> I've stressed it many times, hopefully. Hopefully our listeners have picked up on that now. Um, so the focus of our conversation today is going to be uh, about your article, The Duty of Data Security. So just starting big picture, what prompted you to write this article, especially now? So obviously data security is becoming increasingly important, and I was hearing a lot of complaints some in conferences, some in legal briefs filed in cases, uh, suggesting that we there was just no way to know what the standard was. It was just this mysterious black box of what the rules were that companies had to follow. Yes, we have all of this personal data, but we have no way of knowing what we should be doing with it, what our duties are. And I just thought that was plainly wrong. And the article goes through all, uh, a pretty extensive analysis of all the different sources of data security obligations and comes out with the conclusion that we already know what this duty is and claims to the contrary are wrong, or as I say in the article, they are balderdash. Yeah, I, I really liked that word choice. I, I used it in our promotional tweet for you. Um, so, so it really sounds like it just stemmed from a greater discussion in the law. Did you hear anything from policymakers or perhaps other law professors, too, that were sort of echoing the same sentiment? Yeah, very much. So uh, security is an area where um, it's actually a little bit easier than some other kinds of privacy law to get at least yeah. some amount of agreement, because we at least all agree that hackers getting their hands on data is a problem, and that neither the people whose, uh, whose information is, is stolen nor the data custodians who are holding it want that to happen. So everyone agrees on the goal. Everyone agrees it's bad. Um, and the opportunity is there to see a place where we do have a fair amount of, of, of converging consensus on what the rules are, what the duties are. And I just wanted to kind of put to rest this myth that it was so, it came from so many different sources that therefore it was 
too confusing and unknowable. It's not too confusing. It's complicated. I absolutely acknowledge that, but it's uh, incomplete within our grasp to understand what the obligations are of the people who hold our data. So then in starting uh, narrowing down this question, how did you pick the 14 different uh, approaches or, or frameworks or sources of data security? Yeah, so I picked 14. I tried to be clear that they were examples only, but they I do think they cover the waterfront. There was no, I didn't start out saying there had to be 14. I just started <laughs> looking around for if I were somebody who was concerned about data security, where are all the places that I would look to find out what my obligations might be? And I just started making a list. I started grouping them, and over time, I was able to see how they converged. So, you know, one category, for example, is uh, uh, the credentials that um, uh, industry, you know, the information technology professionals might gain. Uh, I use the CISSP as the example. There's a whole world of those credentials, but if you look at them, they end up echoing one another in their fundamentals, and so. I just use that as the, the placeholder for that whole world. The same thing with um, some of the state laws that are proliferating, spelling out specific security obligations. I was able to group those into a couple of different categories uh, and show how they shared essential characteristics. So by the time I kept reducing the fractions and combining the like things, I had this number 14 and that became the magic number. And then, so breaking it down even further, did you was it pretty clear when you first started putting together this paper that you were going to group them into those specific categories, or did they just kind of fall into place? No, I just I started out looking at the world, and then I I grouped them as the as a as I read through and analyzed everything, and so I didn't have a preconceived notion. I did go in with the hypothesis that they were going to be pretty convergent, and I, and I think that turned out to be true. Was there anything that you felt compelled that you know you wanted to include, but maybe you had to leave out just for the sake of cohesiveness? Or were there things that kind of threw a wrench in, in the model that you had created for this uh, paper? No, so the only thing I set aside, and I talk about this in the paper, is I expected going in that maybe uh, court decisions in lawsuits and private civil litigation might be one of the sources. And when you really look, uh, it turns out that uh, those cases just don't really ever resolve on the merits. They're either dismissed on preliminary motions or class certification, or if they get through those early stages, they settle. So we didn't really have a, a decent number of judicial opinions spelling out, this is what the duty is. So I ended up setting that aside and not using it as one of the 14. But by and large, the rest, I think, come from places that privacy professionals would have expected them to. Fantastic. So, and, and you know, the the next piece of your article also identifies specific procedural measures that um, a term that you coined, data custodians, uh, can use to improve uh, compliance. So, when I was reading this, and and when we were reading this on the articles committee, I think something that jumped out to us was that this doesn't seem like something that you would see in a regular uh, legal uh, article. This seems like something that maybe you would read as a practitioner on the data security side or, um, you know, in an ISACA newsletter. So uh, what what were some of the things that, um, I, I guess, what was your intended audience and, and what were some of the ways that you targeted this maybe towards a more legal, uh, legal audience then? Yeah. So, I mean, I think all my scholarship tries to strive for a real world Impact, and that's not to say that really theoretical scholarship doesn't. It absolutely does. You know, writing something about the jurisprudence behind a certain line of thinking will inform uh, the way people view that going forward, and that's a really important contribution. But uh, I tend to write uh, with a more immediate 
a practical payoff uh, in my articles than some people do. Uh, and you know, let a, let, a, let a thousand flowers bloom when it comes to legal scholarship. Uh, my view in this article, especially though, was I wanted to be something that could be read by and cited by uh, privacy professionals in companies trying to persuade their higher ups that there was clarity and that this was something worth investing in. Uh, I wanted to be read by uh, and used by uh, lawyers uh, opposing the proposition that there was too much mystery in the data for it to be legally enforceable, which is something that uh, you see um, people that are subject to regulatory actions or, or defendants in cases saying repeatedly, and it's just not so, and I wanted to uh, have that real-world uh, payoff of showing that there was this standard and that what the standard asks is uh, uh, achievable, you know, that it's not asking for perfection, but it's asking for a reasonable and appropriate approach. So then moving into then the third, uh, or I guess one more piece on this is that you do identify um, my favorite title of the section, which is worst practices. So in coming up with the worst practices, uh, was it really easy to just look at the news and say, like, look at what all these other parties are doing? Or, or how did you sort of identify and narrow those down? Yeah. So sometimes people, I, I, I call them worst practices because, you know, often, of course, people talk about security best practices. And it turns out that the reasonableness-based frameworks that are out there don't spell out best practices to the level of saying, you know, use this kind of hardware or use this kind of software or use this level of encryption. Um, they talk about calibrating it to risk. But what they do get specific about is what not to do. Mm -hmm. And you can just look at even FTC or, or um, HHS regulatory actions against security breaches or some state attorney general actions and see the things that those people did. And this is what lawyers do when looking at cases all the time. They look at a case and say, ah, if I do this thing, I will get in trouble. Don't do this, right? <laughs> Don't try this at home. And that I think is what the worst practices are speaking to, that it's easier to be specific about the things to avoid than it is to be specific and generally applicable about the things to do. Perfect. And, um, so with the sort of, I would like to think of it as like a crash, crash course in the data privacy landscape, with that, that um, area that you've built, um, what are some of the impacts of this? You already kind of touched on the fact that you want it to be, you know, practical and applicable, but do you want this to be implemented into like a policy world? Do you want this to be something that every law student knows as part of their 1L curriculum? I mean, where, where would you like to see this play out? Only the cool students need to know it as part of their <laughs> curriculum. Some, someone else will never realize how important privacy is. Oh, well. <laughs> No, I think that um, by naming reasonableness and risk assessment and uh, a, a practice of having a policy and implementing it as being the core of what the duty is, it, it's definitely my hope that legislators, regulators, policymakers, and companies, the data custodians themselves, will, will name that and see that as their obligation either that they're enforcing or that they're upholding in their own practices. And I, I think it's happening, right? So there are um, there's, there's multiple proposals. I'm not saying that my article caused this, but uh, I think that lots of people are gravitating towards this reasonableness-based approach to data security. And you're seeing so, um, some state laws that are being proposed now that would uh, kind of enshrine that in law. And it's going to work exactly the way law always develops. One of the big points of the paper is that this is not 
a new phenomenon that organically some practices grow up about what counts as responsible within an industry, and then the law absorbs those either through common law duties or regulations that embody that, those practices. And once we understand that that's what the duty is, I think it's going to be very natural for law to take these increasingly professionalized standards and absorb them into legal rules. So do you think an unintended uh, consequence of this is you're sort of putting all of the legislators' minds at ease, saying this is, a, this is how we're moving, this is the direction that things are going in, or do you think that that's just something that... Uh, that you think is even going to happen now, now that this, this paper's out there? Well, so it is an intended consequence. I absolutely want to tell everybody to relax and not to <laughs> panic about the idea that data security is too big and too fast moving and we can't get our arms around, so forget it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, my audience for that is both the regulatory side, like legislators or, or, or administrative agencies, and also people in the corporate world who are responsible for data security not just throwing up their hands in frustration. Um, this isn't, we, since we agree basically on the goals, and since we understand that there's a problem and that there are other reasons beyond just legal liability, you want to avoid this problem. You want to avoid the reputational damage. You want to avoid hurting your customers. You want to avoid hackers having access to your, to your data. So it all is pointing in the same direction. And I'm just trying to, to help people see that and Take a breath and realize that, I mean, I have lots of other examples in the, law, in the article talking about how law has evolved towards an emerging consensus in just this same way. So we've been here before. We're going to be fine. Perfect. And then so um, do you think that uh, the data retention storage approach that you're kind of, maybe not data retention storage, but data security approach that you're articulating right now, do you think that you've laid out really clear parameters now for someone who, let's say, you know, is starting their own company and is just trying to figure stuff out? Do you think that these are the parameters that they should just adopt as a baseline, or do you think that this is something that is, is for a more advanced organization only? Well, so that's the beautiful thing about how this duty is structured. It's scalable. It's meant to be calibrated to the level of risk and the level of resources that uh, a data custodian has. And that's not just me talking or just industry groups talking. That's written into the language of the HIPAA security rule that's the most important healthcare privacy law. Uh, It's explicitly stated by the Federal Trade Commission, which is the most important consumer protection regulator around data security. Uh, so, you know, uh, with, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and if you are Equifax, you have to be more careful than the corner store does. Mm-hmm. But everybody has some baseline responsibilities, and those are what the duty of data security really points towards. Reasonableness, mindfulness, having a plan, and executing on the plan, and then reevaluating it later. You know, for very small organizations, it might be something that they typically outsource. Uh, you know, you, you, the post office delivers your mail, and you might have uh, some uh, different vendor that provides your, um, your payment card systems so that you don't have to worry about these details. That's increasingly how that's uh, unfolding in, in the real world. But it's just like um, industrial safety or something like that, where there are some specific rules, but there's also just a lot of common sense, and regulators expect you to have that and to plan for it. Do you think that the roadblocks that maybe a company 10 years ago might have faced in implementing a data uh, security uh, system, do you think that those roadblocks are still in play today? 
or do you think that there's a new sort of uh, difficulty with implementing a data security practice that we're seeing now? So obviously the challenges are greater, the technological challenges, the bad guys are, are much more sophisticated. But so are the good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always going to be true, right? It's always going to be a sort of arms race between uh, those who would, who would breach security and those who would uh, reinforce it. Um, and that's why the duty has to be about risk-based reasonableness and policies and precautions and not some kind of uh, cookbook recipe that tells you exactly what you should be implementing. So I think the challenges are greater uh, than they were, and and in some cases they're going to require more resources than they used to require. Uh, on the other hand, the benefits that people are getting from personal data are growing and growing. The um, the payoff of of collecting and processing personal data is really high, and in order to have those benefits, you're also going to need to um, be careful with the precious stuff you're storing. Definitely. Now, I think that we talked about this a little bit, but we talked about policy and um, some of the regulatory arms that are involved in this. Do you think that there's a model right now, in, today, in place, in practice, that you're like, this is the right way to go when we when we talk about how to advise companies or where standards that uh, states should even follow? Right. So, I mean, there are frameworks out there, many of the ones that I, that I list, especially on the private sector side, that give really good uh, structured guidance on that. So, you know, the the NIST framework that I talk about in the article is a, is a really good starting point. It drills down to a lot of the things you would need to be thinking about uh, as a data custodian to know how to respond to the dangers to your data. Um, but it's going to be different for different organizations. Right? The whole thing is tied to your individual risk, and your risk has to do with the kind of data you hold, the kind of systems you have, the identifiability of your data. Uh, the size of your organization, um, the uh, you know a host of considerations, and so I would not. I mean, some people want a scholar like me to go out into the world and come back and say, "Look, here's you know a, a JMart company. They have a great policy, <laughs> and you should just do everything that they do." Um, but they're not your company, so no, you shouldn't. Definitely not the same as a sample contract that you would pull offline and say this is the right way of approaching no, it. No, right. It's not. And, and by the way, of course, all you future lawyers out there, don't do that without thinking. <laughs> right. Even taking form contracts can be dangerous. But right. I mean, you need to. You can you learn from looking at other people's practices? Absolutely. And um, a lot of uh, there's a lot of organizations out there now where companies are. Uh, Share, you know, even in organizations like the IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, as an example, those are gathering places for companies to talk about what they're doing and what works for them. But it's what works for them, and you have to um, customize your approach to your own needs and your own risk. Perfect. Now, uh, for the last few questions that we have here, I'm just going to take a little bit of a pivot to privacy law as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing a lot of regulations. We are seeing a lot of articles. The CEO of Snapchat has said some things mm-hmm. about privacy regulations in general. Um, just taking a step back here, what are your general thoughts on the way that things are moving right now in, in Congress with privacy laws? So this is a really exciting time. Unlike security, though, privacy more more broadly, right? So security is 
bad guys take the data and neither the custodian nor the person who's in the data wanted that to happen. Mm-hmm. Privacy is more complicated because it's things like the company that collected the data sharing it with a third party for certain purposes or uh, it being used downstream in different ways. Those are more complicated questions where we have less consensus. Mm-hmm. So I think it's being harder to identify an already existing coherent duty of privacy mm-hmm. than it is for a duty of data security like I did here. That said, there's definitely increased interest, interest in the public, interest in lawmakers. I think the sort of the tech lash that's happening more generally where the kind of political uh, invulnerability of Silicon Valley has been punctured, uh, not only around privacy breaches, but around you know, election manipulation and revenge porn and and hate groups and lots of other concerns, uh, and, and just the sheer size of some of these platforms and the power that they have. So I think the political landscape is changing a lot. Uh, I don't know if stuff's going to happen in Congress. There are a couple of really big stumbling blocks. The biggest one is probably the fundamental question of whether um, federal law will preempt state law. And we, we're seeing a pretty rapidly developing partisan split on that question. Even among people who agree privacy is really important, you have primarily Republicans and industry uh, sources saying it, a federal law needs to trump or supersede, I should say, <laughs> the, uh, all the state laws and uh, privacy advocates and generally Democrats saying, no, it shouldn't. This new law in California, that's uh, the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, that's going to take effect uh, next year um, is is quite strong, and uh, so a lot of privacy advocates don't want to see it short circuited by a federal action, and some other people do want to see it short circuited because they think the disuniformity that results is a problem. That fight's going to go on, I think, for a while. Uh, I'm involved in really early stage efforts at the Uniform Law Commission as a reporter, and they're exploring the possibility. They haven't decided whether to go forward yet. They're exploring the possibility of whether some kind of uniform state law might allow states to experiment, but also help with the uniformity issues that are a concern. And maybe that's the direction it's going to go. It's it's hard to say yet. Are there specific uniformity issues that are just popping up right now that you're noticing on your end? Yeah, well, so so the question of, of the CCPA, that California law, and what it requires, it allows people to opt out of certain third-party uses. It has some notice obligations. It requires what people are colloquially calling a do not sell button on websites. And um, that's going to be required in California for certain subsets of companies, not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And the question is, are those California practices going to be contagious to other states? Is it going to basically be the way California emissions standards have been, where the car companies have just said, oh, what the heck, we'll just follow California rules for all our cars? Or are they going to split California off like they have with some previous California privacy rules? Uh, and this happens to be the subject of my current article that I'm working on with Margot Kaminsky at uh, the University of Colorado and Anupam Chander at Georgetown. We're looking at whether the California effect is going to apply to privacy. So I think that's pretty exciting. That is exciting. I was going to ask you that next, so I'm happy well, that you go. that you got it. But it seems like you're working on a lot of stuff in the sphere right now. Um, is that's one thing that we have looking forward to? How else can we stay updated with what you're working on and what you're publishing? At Bill McGov on Twitter <laughs> is probably the best, as you said at the, at the top of the session. And um, you know, one nice thing about privacy is it's 
it's so often in the news. There's so much good information online available, um, it, and it moves fast. But there's also a lot of uh, a lot of places you can look to uh, to get the information you need. Awesome. And as a, a researcher, as a law student, if you're really interested in this area of law, uh, who should we be reaching out to? Who should we be reading? Where should we be going for this information? So I mentioned the IAPP. I think their website's really good. Some of it is behind, um, you know, login credentials for their members, but a lot of it is publicly available. I think that's a really good source. Um, the um, Bloomberg BNA has a very, very good a privacy and security report for current awareness that's a, sort of a weekly thing. And then they have breaking updates. Uh, again, that's partly subscription, but partly visible to the public. The advocacy groups all keep really good information. You understand the perspective it's coming from, but they really are keeping people up to date. So like EFF, CDT. And then there's a number of law firms that have really created a name for themselves as being places to go for privacy. And they often have really good coverage. They all have blogs. So uh, Hogan Lovells is one. Um, uh, Hunton is one. Uh, and a bunch of other, once you start finding them, you, you they, and, and on Twitter, one leads to the other. And so you can build up a pretty good reading list. That's already probably more than you can consume easily in a sitting. And so uh, there's no shortage of possibilities. Fantastic. And then our last question, and this is something we're going to be doing for all of our interviewers, is our TLDR, too long, didn't read, takeaway. Mm -hmm. So what is your TLDR takeaway for your piece, The Duty of Data Security? Uh, we, know, we already know what the duty of data security is, and claims to the contrary are balderdash. Uh, just go ahead and, and look around at what everyone else is doing, and that's what's reasonable. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Dean McGovern. We really appreciate it. I know you're incredibly busy. Um, I was lucky enough to take a class with uh, Dean McGovern, and I highly recommend that you look up some of his additional work. He also speaks regularly on Minnesota Public Radio, so that's also an option if you want to keep up to date. A couple other people that we want to thank as well, uh, Randy Barrett, Senior Communications Tech at UMN Law for the technical support, help with coordinating this podcast. This wouldn't be possible without you. Um, to Luke Johnson, Mark Cohen for helping us get this out there and on the airwaves as well to the UMN Law faculty that made this possible, including Lisa Birch, uh, to Volume 103 of the Minnesota Law Review, who were entirely supportive of this happening and sort of let me run with it, and to you, the listeners, uh, for taking the time to tune in and listen to our first ever recording. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to tweet us at MinLawRev, or you can message me directly at Vina underscore Tripathi. We'll see you next time on Experto Crede. This podcast has been brought to you by the Minnesota Law Review. You can find us on the web at minnesotalawreview.org. Follow us on Twitter at Minnesota Law Rev. To subscribe to our podcast, please visit soundcloud.com slash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast provider. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.